Microaggressions are everyday phrases, words, and nonverbal communications that intentionally or unintentionally create a negative, unwelcoming, even hostile environment. They tend to arise out of our unconscious or implicit biases. Those on the receiving end of microaggressions can experience significant impact on their quality of life. The medical community is no exception. Here to discuss microaggressions in a special presentation edition are Dr. Catherine Najathiori, an anesthesiologist specializing in regional anesthesia and perioperative medicine, Dr. Aaron O'Brien, a surgeon specializing in otorhinolaryngology, and Dr. Nafisa Warner, an anesthesiologist specializing in pain medicine. I'm Dr. Catherine Jathiori, and I'll be presenting with my colleagues on the topic of microaggression. Imagine these scenarios. A female or a minority physician is seeing a patient, and the patient wants to know where the physician is from or how long they have worked for the health institution. A colleague asks a female colleague if she's going to work part-time after starting a family. Or you're a physician concerning a patient for a procedure, and the patient tells you they don't want black blood. All these scenarios could be very benign, but they could also be very charged depending on the situation. This is why we're here today to talk about today's topic, microaggression. So what is microaggression? The term microaggression was first coined by Chester Pierce. He was an African-American psychiatrist from Harvard, and this was in the 1970s. He was doing studies looking at racial relationships between majority white uh, white communities and the African-American as a minority community. He defined microaggression as daily put-downs. These were subtle verbal and nonverbal communications that were aimed at communicating hostility, slights, and insults to the victim. And the idea is that this happens because of the perceived differences between the two individual groups. In his studies, he was looking to see what the effect of these racial interactions would have on the psychosocial, economic, and physiologic effect on the African-American communities. Over time, this concept was expanded to include other minority groups. In the mid-2000s, there was a major breakthrough. Dr. Darren Tsu, who's an Asian-American psychologist from Columbia University, subclassified microaggression into three main groups. The first one, microassault. These are conscious and deliberate discriminatory actions and verbal exchanges. For instance, an African-American colleague finds a noose on their desk. An elder, older colleague finds an elder alert sign at their desk. That's a micro-assault. Micro-insult, the next group. These are subtle verbal and nonverbal actions and exchanges. For instance, a school or a job tells an applicant that they only accept a certain percentage of that minority group. So what is that saying to that minority person? Or for instance, a mid-level management colleague asks a minority or female how they got that position, implying that maybe there's a quota system and that's why they got that job. Last but not least, micro-invalidations. These are even more subtle, also verbal exchanges or actions. They're really meant to exclude or nullify the person's experience and feelings. For instance, you're working with a female colleague who's also a scientist and you tell them you don't look like a scientist. 
What are you telling them about their abilities, their goals, and their achievements? Or you you have an Asian-American colleague who makes it known that they went to an Ivy League school, and your response is, of course. Are you implying that all Asian-American uh, uh, Asian Americans attend Ivy League schools? What does that say about the Asian-American who didn't get to go to an Ivy League school? What does it mean about their identity and also about their achievements and their goals? You can see why micro-invalidations are the most damaging because of their deep psychological impact. But why do we care? We know we have laws that prohibit outright discrimination against race, sex, religion, nation of origin, etc. However, the way our society is designed is not always fair. One potential problem that has been identified is the issue of bias. We have conscious bias or explicit bias, and we have implicit bias or unconscious bias. Part of the problem is our social nurturing of the way we are brought up and something called fear conditioning. For instance, some subset of groups are stereocast or stereotyped uh, into various roles. For instance, African-American men are typecast as aggressive. So you have an African-American coworker, maybe you're fearful of upsetting them because you assume they're going to be aggressive towards you if they are upset. You have an overweight uh, colleague, you assume they're doing it to themselves because they overeat, they don't know how to express themselves and that's why they're overweight. Or for instance, a female colleague who is denied opportunities to either be part of a research project, spearhead a project, because everyone is assuming, because she's a female, she's going to be most likely to take time off to go deal with family emergencies. What does that mean about that person's abilities and their goals and their dreams? You can see why microaggression is a problem in the workplace. Unfortunately, most of the time, microaggressive actions are unacknowledged both by the victim and the aggressor. These are everyday occurrences, but they can have real consequences. Next, we'll have Dr. O'Brien discuss the effects of microaggression. So Dr. Najati Ori has defined microaggressions for us and talked about the literature on the different types of microaggressions. What we want to talk about next are the ways in which microaggressions can have an effect on people, and we're particularly looking at people working in healthcare. So one concern with microaggressions is that they can be subtle. And we're not talking about overt racism or sexism. We're talking about words and actions that can be less obvious. But these can still have an effect, though, on the person who hears them. Let's say from a personal example, someone just said something to me that I think might be a microaggression. What's going on in my head? So I'm thinking, what did they mean? Should I ask them about it? Why did they say that? And then I'm wondering what happens if I say something or if I don't say something. And then I realize I'm still thinking about what they just said instead of what I'm supposed to be focused on. If it happens in the operating room, I've just been derailed from whatever I'm supposed to be concentrating on and not thinking about what they just told me. This can be an intrusive cognition effect where now I'm still perseverating about this comment. Also, after hearing microaggression, I may wonder about the person who just said it. Do they have some underlying bias? Did they have some intent? Was that meant to be hurtful? When we think about prejudice and bias, people develop adaptive strategies for coping with prejudice. You have this armor. You're protected. You know how to respond to obvious sexism or obvious racism to protect yourself. But what about if the prejudice or the bias is ambiguous? Someone will say something, you're not sure what they meant, or you didn't expect it from them, you don't have a ready response. 
Maybe you wonder if they're right. Maybe what they just said about you um, is something that they actually believe about you. And if this is someone that you work with, this can be especially hurtful. What if the microaggression reinforces some doubts you already have about yourself? And that brings up the idea of imposter syndrome, where someone is already feeling insecure, undeserving, or unaccomplished, like they don't belong here. One question we have is, do microaggressions contribute to imposter syndrome? So for example, I matched into my residency program at ENT. I was excited because I was going to be training at a really good program. And in my medical school, I told an attending in another department that I had matched in this great program. And he looked at me skeptically, and he said, how did you match there? Well, I thought I matched there because I'm smart, and I worked hard, and I was going to do well. But it sounded like he had doubts in me. And then I'm wondering if he knows something that I don't know. So now I've got some doubts about my abilities, and I haven't even started. Maybe a microaggression is about your minority or outsider status. There's a concept called stereotype threat. People feel at risk of confirming a negative stereotype about their own group. They worry that they're going to confirm that stereotype, and then that, ironically that leads them to participate in self-defeating behaviors, which then can reaffirm or confirm that stereotype. So for example, I started this ENT program, this residency, and I was the only woman in my class, which was common back then. And during that first week, a senior resident said to me, are you going to quit? The woman last year quit. That's my first week of residency. So I've already got this idea now that they're looking at me as someone who might quit or I'm going to fail because I'm the woman and the woman last year quit. So if I don't do well, I'm going to prove that women can't do this. And then unfortunately, knowing that that stereotype is out there, I may have been harder on the women after me because if they weren't doing well, they were going to confirm that stereotype. And so one question is, do microaggressions make stereotype threat and self-defeating behaviors worse? So what's the evidence that microaggressions can have any effect? Some people say like, oh, those comments aren't really that harmful. How do we measure, though, if microaggressions do have some effect? There are some studies outside medicine that we can look at as data that microaggressions can be harmful. When we look at studies on racism, there are a couple of studies looking at the effect of racism, and in these studies on African-American participants. They were asked to solve problems and work in teams where they were either exposed to overt racism or subtle racism. When they had to do these tasks, they actually did worse after they were exposed to subtle racism as opposed to overt racism. And the authors in these studies concluded that being exposed to more subtle racism, which is harder to identify, can be more mentally taxing. And their conclusion was that ambiguous racism is not benign. Another study looked at stereotype threat, specifically in, in bias, racial bias and cognition. And in this study, tests were given to black and white students, and they were told before the test either, this is a test of ability, the African-American students did worse. If they were told it's a test of problem solving, both groups did equally. Or if the students had to write down their race before they took the test, the African-American students did worse. So just bringing up race or bringing up that there may be some differences in the racial groups affected their ability to do those tests. You can see similar results in studies of socioeconomic status. In one study, the students were given a test and they were told, one group, that the test showed students of lower socioeconomic status were going to do worse. 
the students who were of lower socioeconomic status did do worse in those tests compared to the students that weren't told that before the test. So they were reinforcing the stereotype, and then it did affect the outcome on those students' testing abilities. So just comments before someone does a task about a stereotype can affect how they performed. What about gender bias in test performance? In one study, a math test was given to men and women. Before the test, one group was told that this test shows a gender difference. Women did worse on that test. Another group showed, was told there was no gender difference. Men and women did equally. There is a study with uh, business students in an MBA program. They were put in negotiation uh, scenarios. In one group, the women were told, women do worse at negotiating. Those women actually did do worse in that test than in the group where the women were not told that quote, women were worse at negotiating, end quote. You can even do it the other way. There was a study where people were given a test on interpreting nonverbal cues, men and women. The men were told in one group that women do better on this test, and in the other group they didn't get any instructions. The men did worse on the test if they were told that women do better. So again, a comment before a task can reinforce a stereotype that can affect someone's performance. Moving on to medicine, though, can we see those types of effects from subtle racism or sexism in teamwork or cognition or test-taking? It's harder to study in medicine. We can't put someone in a scenario and say, take care of this patient, women do worse, or there's a difference in, in race. But we can look at some evidence in gender gaps and then talk about potential causes of those gaps. One example I have is a study where they were looking at laparoscopic surgery simulators. And this is for residents and general surgery and OB-GYN. First, they had to predict how well they would do on the simulator, and then they had to do the test and see what their scores were. Female general surgery and OB-GYN residents underpredicted their ability to take this test. The men accurately predicted their scores. And then when they all did the test, they all scored the same. So why is there this confidence gap for the female residents? Are we subtly reinforcing negative stereotypes about women in surgery? Does this affect their confidence? There's another study on male and female residents in the operating room in a real-life situation where we looked at, not us, but another, another uh, department looked at how attendings and residents scored their degree of autonomy. How much did they get to do the case on their own? Female residents were given less autonomy than male residents. And that gap in autonomy got worse with higher levels of residency. Why? Do the attendings feel like the women aren't as confident, or do the women feel less confident? A study that just came out last month, another on laparoscopic surgery in the operating room on real patients. The attendings scored female residents as needing more guidance, even though when they put female and male residents in a simulator, both groups scored the same objectively. So again, we see this confidence gap and an evaluation gap for female residents. Is it due to bias? Are there some subtle cues that, that uh, affect performance or evaluations? There's a couple more studies to talk about too with gender differences in training. One study looking at milestone evaluations in emergency medicine. So at what point did a resident meet competency to do a skill? The male residents were judged as meeting their milestones more quickly, and by the end of residency, that gap in meeting milestones was the equivalent of three months of training. Another study looked at the evaluations that female residents get, so the comments that attendings wrote about residents in the emergency department. Female residents had more contradictory comments. 
They were told they were too autonomous or they lacked autonomy. Their comments were more critical. What happens to women when they get these confusing comments in their feedback? What does that do for their confidence level? And then finally, there's a study out of another department, another program where they looked at stereotype threat of junior faculty. Women in these junior positions in academic medicine were more likely to feel more vulnerable and less likely to belong or less likely to feel like they had the potential to succeed at their institution than the male junior faculty. So again, we don't have great studies in healthcare proving that microaggressions or subtle bias or subtle racism have a real effect on how people perform in medical roles, but we can look at gaps that exist both for race and gender in medical school, in test taking, evaluations, letters of recommendations, there's differences between men and women in residency and autonomy and in evaluations and then in careers, in promotion and salary and leadership. We can extrapolate from some of this data that microaggressions may be having an effect and that stereotype threat and imposter syndrome may be made worse by subtle comments. We need more evidence. What we wanna talk about though is when there are comments that could be harmful or may expose bias or may be misunderstood, how do you deal with those in the workplace? And Dr. Warner is going to talk about how you address microaggressions at work. This is Dr. Anjali Bagra, general internist at Mayo Clinic. I'd like to personally invite you to join the GRIT movement for growth, resilience, inspiration, and tenacity in healthcare. We'll be in California this fall at the Ojai Valley Inn. Together, we'll work through evidence-based strategies to promote professional development and enhance personal well-being. If we're going to take ground back from burnout, we need to address the growing need for improved clinician wellness and gender-balanced leadership in our healthcare teams. To find out more about what past attendees are calling a life-changing experience, visit gimeducation.mayo.edu slash grit2019. Thank you, Dr. O'Brien. Similar to what you were saying, we're often faced with the question, how do you address microaggressions? What do you say when you're faced with a microaggression? Well, there are likely numerous ways of dealing with a microaggression. We have come up with a simplified approach using the acronym GRIT. This acronym may help others who struggle, as we have, and still do, with finding the right words at the right time. So using the acronym GRIT, the G stands for gathering your thoughts. The first thing you should do when you encounter a microaggression is to take a moment, take a deep breath, gather your thoughts. You don't want to react right away. You want to act rather than react. Responding with anger often can work against you. So take a second and consider the context. Decide if this is indeed the correct time or place to address it. Many microaggressions can be addressed on the spot. Sometimes, however, this may not be the most ideal approach. For instance, if the comment was made in a group setting or if a comment was made by a new boss in a situation of a clear power differential with the potential for personal or professional retaliation. In those instances, it may not be the best time or place to address the microaggression. But if you go forward and you say, you know what, this is definitely a microaggression, I do want to say something and I want to address it, 
The R in the acronym GRIT represents restate. So if you decide to address the microaggression, it is helpful to simply restate the comment. Provide a reflection directly to the person that made the comment. Oftentimes this will allow the person to clarify their comment or realize the potential negative impact of their words or actions. Come from curiosity and not judgment. Phrases such as, I think I heard you saying, is that correct? Or, I want to make sure that I understand what you were saying. Were you saying? The third part about the GRIT acronym is I, and that stands for inquire. After restating and giving the person a chance to respond, it is time to dig a little deeper. Help me understand statements may be extremely useful. Phrases such as, please help me understand what you mean by that statement. Come from a place of non-judgment. The goal is to address the microaggression, not attack the person making the microaggression. Remember that the intent usually is not negative. The T in the acronym GRID stands for talk it out. Once you have given the person a chance to explain and you have taken the opportunity to listen and process, it's now, it's now time to talk it out. Talk about the potential impact that the statement may have on others. Talk about your personal thoughts and feelings surrounding that statement. Phrases such as, in my experience, that comment may perpetuate negative stereotypes. Use questions to facilitate meaningful dialogue, such as, what message do you think such a comment sends? If you do not take the, if you do not take the opportunity to have this conversation with the person responsible for the microaggression, it may be helpful to talk the situation out with others in your support network. Talking it out with friends and loved, loved ones can be very helpful. Use of the GRIT mnemonic has helped us address microaggressions both inside and outside of the workplace. A few important things to consider when doing so. One, always separate the person from the action. Address the microaggression, not the microaggressor. Keep in mind that not all individuals that make comments like that have ill intent. Majority of the time, the individuals have no clue the effect of those words on those around them. To avoid personal attacks or use statements, for instance, phrases such as, you are a racist, is likely to be poorly received. However, saying, that remark that you made may be perceived as racially insensitive, may very well be eye-opening to the person who, who made that comment. How you address the microaggression is just as critical as what you say, so be mindful of your voice level and your body language. Also, the use of humor can go a long way in diffusing what may otherwise be an uncomfortable situation. But not every situation can be handled with humor. It's also important to note if addressing microaggression that you witness against another, do not speak for that affected person. Don't say you are hurting this individual's feelings. A better approach would be saying, this is how I perceived that comment. We are all recipients of microaggression witnesses of microaggression and perpetrators of microaggression. If someone confronts you about a microaggression that you may have made, listen to them. Own up to it. This is certainly much easier said than done. Microaggressions are pervasive and will likely never fully disappear, but we must try. In order to make a better workplace for all, we must all work together to recognize and address our own inherent discriminations and biases. Mayo Clinic offers medical education conferences at locations around the country and the globe. 
Learn from medical experts and network with colleagues at exciting destinations. Plan your next CME course by visiting ce.mayo.edu. Join us weekly here at Mayo Clinic Talks as we discuss best practices and burning questions. Subscribe today using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app.